Hello and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny, our podcast series where you can wise up on blockchain and Web3 as we talk to the people seeking to build a better internet. Owl Explains is powered by Avalabs, a blockchain software company and participant in the Avalanche ecosystem. My name is Silvia Sanchez, project manager of Owl Explains, and with that, I'll hand it over to today's amazing speakers. All right, hello everyone, and thanks uh, and thanks for joining us today. Um, my name is Sean Helms. I'm the head of the Technology Transactions Group at the law firm of uh, McDermott, Will and Emery. Uh, I have a uh, I have a great panel here with me today. We've uh, all gotten a chance to know each other over the past few weeks, and I'm um, excited to be doing this podcast with them today. Uh, so let's do a let's do a quick round of introductions. Erwin, do you want to get us started? I can, I'll jump in to start. I am, I'm Anna Gressel. I'm from Dubbo Boys in Plimpton. I'm a senior associate there, and I focus on AI governance, regulation, compliance, helping companies build AI tools really at every stage of life cycle and then defend them uh, before regulators or in civil suits. Great. Uh, great to see everybody again, Sean, Anna, Kai. Uh, my name is Erwin Volder. I'm the head of policy at the UPM Blockchain Association. So I essentially coordinate across the Web3 community and EU institutions, and I raise all the levels at EU level that need to be RE blockchain, digital assets, um, and everything related to the development of smart contracts in the EU single market. And I'm Kai Zenner from the European Parliament, uh, working there for MEP Axel Voss um, EPP Group. And yeah, we are quite active when it comes to um, AI legislation, also liability and AI and data protection. Great. Great. Well, thank you again. You know, really excited to be talking to you guys again on this topic. Um, we uh, we heard a lot in the news about uh, about artificial intelligence these days um, I have been uh, I've been predicting an inflection point in artificial intelligence for about 10 years uh, and I've been wrong for nine for nine of the 10 years uh, but I really think uh, given all the movement in generative AI now is uh, sort of the 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 democratization of artificial intelligence in a way that uh, I don't think we've Ever seen before, and is truly the inflection point for this technology. Um, as ChatGPT sort of sprung upon the world, and and we saw uh, generative AI creating selfies of people that were flying around TikTok, and um, have had all kinds of generative AI technologies, and 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 not only images and text and audio. Um, it's is really, I think, raised not only the public consciousness but the public imagination as to what could happen with this technology. Um, at the same time, we're hearing a lot of doomsday predictions, uh, and and people are really worried about the technology. and 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 we've had uh, technology leaders like uh, um, Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak that are uh, calling for a pause in AI development. Um, in in a lot of ways, to me at least, it feels like a bit of the early days of the pandemic, uh, where it's a real fear of the unknown and people wanting to sort of, you know, clamp down and not and not embrace the technology but push back on the technology. 
And I think a lot of that is around a lack of, one, a lack of knowledge, and two, a lack of trust. And so, uh, you know, I'm interested to explore the topics today of sort of what blockchain might be able to do to help in this sort of critical moment of artificial intelligence and technology development. And so, so with that as a bit of a kickoff, um, Anna, can you give us an overview of what what is artificial intelligence? Sure, Sean. Uh, thanks so much. And you know, we've been working in the AI space, I would say, consistently since around 2017 and 2018. And what we work with from an from a systems or policy or even an application layer perspective is very different from uh, what we were seeing back then. So I want to talk a little bit about what, what I might call traditional AI, and then I'll kick it into generative AI, which is, is quite a bit different in terms of its capabilities. So traditional AI, when we started doing this work, um, really was a set of applications that were focused on using a large amount of data to make predictions or decisions uh, based on patterns in that data. So they were very good pattern recognizers, and they were used to do things like determine who might be um, a good bet for a loan or who um, should be accelerated from an insurance underwriting perspective because they were very low risk and, and companies could figure that out and move them through the insurance pipeline a little bit more quickly. They were also really good at doing things like detecting fraud, noticing anomalous patterns in data, and then flagging anomalous transactions for a second look. And so, you know, those kinds of applications, I would say, were developed really at the corporate level. They were, they were, um, task specific and very good at executing on a particular task. What we're seeing with generative AI is a little bit different. And I know, you know, for folks listening who are like, what's generative AI? That Those are models like um, ChatGPT or Dolly is an image generator. There are other kinds of generative AI models. Those really go from just making predictions to, you know, as the name suggests, actually generating text we're generating analyses, um, generating images. So we're not just um, making decisions or predictions. We're actually creating something. And that is a little bit um, different. It raises a few different kinds of issues from an AI, I would say, trust, ethics, responsibility perspective. The first is, you know, we're not just talking about, again, specific tasks. We're talking about very open-ended models that can be used for a lot of different things. They're multi-purpose. Many of the the foundation models at the, you know, what we call the bottom of that technology stack can be used to do everything from, you know, make recommendations on or drive tax analyses. They can be used to write short stories. They can be used to write poems. They can be used to analyze uh, public statements. They're really very multi-purpose. They don't have to be trained for a specific purpose, but they can be prompted by a user. The second is that they're multimodal. So some of these models can actually do things like text to image, image to text, text to video, image to video. You know, they can analyze sounds, depth, 3D modeling. They can do a lot. And that kind of multi-purpose set of capabilities is really important when we think about what the models may accomplish in the future and why they're very different from those specific kind of task task oriented models. And the finally, uh, the final thing I would mention is that they're often in the hands of uh, individual people, and so these are not necessarily always technologies that are just behind the big corporate wall. Many of them have been made available to users through um, kind of generally open user interfaces or even through um, open source. Kind of systems. Um, and that is important, I think, to Sean's earlier point about democratization. So we're really beginning to see the democratization of, of this AI technology, and many people are creating new applications using it. Yeah, 
That's great, Anna. Um, Kai, I know you are um, instrumental in working a lot in the regulatory space for artificial intelligence. Uh, can you give us a bit of an overview of what's happening in that space and what are the key principles uh, that regulators are looking at? Yeah, gladly. And <clears throat> I think I will draw back um, on a lot of those points that were just mentioned uh, by Anna because it's quite interesting. Um, the the whole, let's say, let's regulate um, AI movement, uh, which is a global movement, um, really started already um, one decade um, ago. So. Um, already in 2017, for example, the OECD was discussing how to regulate AI. And back then, it was not about um, large language models. Uh, so foundation models like um, GBT4 and um, chatbot apps like ChatGBT and BART uh, that are now recently only um, developed. But it was more about... Um, new machine learning and deep learning technologies because already that technologies kind of challenged um, our existing legislative uh, frameworks. For example, in the area of liability legislation in many member states within the European Union um, face a situation where certain harms that are, for example, caused by um, a defect drone that is falling um, on the head of my grandmother would not be covered and therefore my grandmother would not get any redress. And um, yeah, it was mentioned that um, certain elements like opacity, complexity, autonomy and so on are really leading to those legal gaps. And based on this, um, let's say, fi or these findings, um, people worldwide were working on certain principles like um, human oversight, like technical documentation, um, that the data sets needs to be unbiased, transparency, and so on and so on to yeah, address those legal gaps a little bit, um, um, let's say update our legislative frameworks and um, also build up, let's say, legal certainty that is needed to push forward the deployment of those new AI systems. And um, the AI Act in the European Union is really based on all those prep work by OECD, but also by UNESCO and a lot of other actors, and especially also the um, um, harmonization, um, organi uh, technical harmoni um, harmonized standards organizations like ISO, um, IEEE, and so on and so on that also did already lengthy work on that. And then suddenly, like Anna was saying, there was um, a new kid in the block. <laughs> um, so LLMs and so on and so on that were really challenging all those legal or new legal proposals um, because uh, for example, the AI Act was really focusing on a um, machine learning system that has an intended purpose and is also having concrete use cases. And as Anna said, those new large language models can be used for thousands of different um, use cases, have not a real intended purpose. And now we need to start a little bit from the scratch again. So we have, for example, now the AI Act that again is kind of covering machine learning, normal machine learning and deep learning systems. But we have 
this new type of AI, or which is now becoming more and more popular and um, big. And yeah, again, we, we need to find out what we need to adjust and adapt because what was um, developed internationally and in the European Union is not really fitting. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and you know, Kai, you're, you're, you're highlighting a point I had in my mind, and that is um, legislation tends to move slow, right? And technology tends to move quick. And, and uh, I think what I'd like to explore with you all is could there be a technological solution to some of the problems uh, that, that society views with AI platforms. And so with that in mind, um, what are some areas that you all are seeing where blockchain and artificial intelligence are overlapping? And what does that, what does that look like? So if you want, I could take that one. Um, I mean, at a basic, like you have decentralized infrastructure and blockchain t technology, they can act as, you know, sort of like encryption back guardrails for AI systems, right? So in that kind of model, an AI system can be deployed with those built-in guardrails to reduce their ability to be misused or utilized for any kind of negative actions or behaviors. Um, developers of those AIs, um, of those AI models could then encode specific parameters within which the AI can access, for example, various key systems like private keys. And then these can be enforced with conditions with the help of, of tamper-proof technology like, uh, like blockchain and other kinds of distributed ledgers and smart contracts. And also increasingly, this has a great implication for oracles, right? Um, where I see the, the flip side of that is that, and, 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 and Kai have already touched on this, um, these large language models and generative AI, so for example, like DALI, Midjourney, et cetera, they can create a whole bunch of really complex images and deep fakes. Like recently we saw that somebody created, um, it was like an image of the Pentagon that was on fire. It wasn't real and the Dow dropped 30 points, right? So you can imagine, sophisticated trading bots that are on the one hand primed to issue um, shorts on certain stocks with respect to what like a deep fake has created to prompt that kind of market condition happening. Um, and then that compounded ad infinitum, right? So on the one hand, sure, you, you know, we can make the argument that you can use distributed ledgers to keep the guardrails, encryption based guardrails on those AI systems. But on the other hand, we also have the problem of this de facto embedding those same risks and amplifying them in the event that somebody or a group of somebody's decide that there's a lot of money to be made in there oftentimes is unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, Anna, for you, um, you know, when, when I think about uh, sort of the, the ethos of blockchain, um, it's very open. Um, most companies open source their platforms. Um, part of the draw to blockchain is this, you know, auditability and transparency. And and it's 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 um, I think the uh, just sort of openness of everything in the blockchain world is a bit um, contrary to historically how people have viewed AI and, and sort of by the nature of the technology in a way where sort of, you know, data goes in, there's this sort of black box 
processing and predictions come out. And and even with even with large language models um, and generative AI, there's been lots of questions about how does the technology work, what has it been trained on, and 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 not a lot of clear answers around that. And so, you know, um, in some ways, I see these uh, two technologies approaching what they do from opposite ends of the spectrum from a transparency perspective. And, you know, I'm interested in your view on that and how these technologies might be able to complement each other. Yeah, I think that's such a good question. And it's, if I had to predict, I think it's an area where we're going to see a lot of uh, development just from a solutions-based perspective. And when you think about what the drivers are for that, it's, I think it's not just this question of can we open the black box because we want to, because we think it's you know more trustworthy or ethical, but also because regulation will compel us to. And you know, Kai may want to chime in on this later, but one of the core um, core kind of concepts within the AI Act is this is this idea of information transfer between different actors or uh, clarity of information transparency between developers and, um, and government authorities, for example. And so it, it asks for all different kinds of mechanisms to make that happen. Data governance on the one hand, risk management related to AI systems on the other, auditability, record keeping, logging. I mean, these are all transparency kind of by different words and in different terms. And so I think the question is on a a number of different levels, how does blockchain potentially help with that? Um, You know, notwithstanding the fact that there are kind of complexities, I think we'll talk about this on scaling, but I'll, let me put them into a few buckets of at least some promising areas that I see. Uh, The first would be with respect to inputs to AI systems. That's usually what we would think of as the data used to train AI systems or run AI systems. Blockchain, the ledger capabilities, I think, offer us some really interesting options around um, record keeping and data provenance to make sure that the inputs that to AI models are actually of very high quality and are sourced from kind of clear trusted, reputable sources. That may not work for all different kinds of AI, but at least for some kinds of AI, that actually may offer a really um, interesting benefit in terms of making sure that that data is trustworthy in and of itself when that matters for applications where that matters. Or, you know, I think this has been in the news lately, potentially that there's traceability with respect to things like um, consent to to data to data use or intellectual property rights with respect to to that underlying data, whether that uh, IP right has been granted, that can potentially be recorded in the blockchain, but it'll take some effort to uh, to see how to make that work, and I think we'll see some folks working in that uh, direction. The second is with respect to the functioning of the AI model itself. I mentioned auditability earlier, and I think it's a really interesting question to ask whether blockchain could be the right place to record decisions made about um, consequential uh, impacts on on particular people or or particular decisions made by the model. And so, you know, does that recording a decision in a blockchain so you could go back and audit it later? Possibly, but I, I don't think the technology is there yet. But it is one way to think about, you know, whether that automated decision could be recorded and looked at later and whether there's like a, a, an interesting and useful record being made. And the final thing is on the output um, of the model itself, uh, just getting back to, I think, one of the points Erwin raised earlier, there are these really tricky issues kind of coming up around deep fakes and, and credibility of information. And so if there can be some sort of 
um, record kept of, uh, like, unlike data provenance, this is actually about the credibility of the output. Uh, is it, can we mark something as being created by a deep fake? Or conversely, can we mark something, or created by an AI model, or can we mark something as being created by a human? So we know the provenance of the output and whether it is uh, being, whether it was modified, whether it, it was affected in some way by an AI system. That may end up being important down the road for uh, for things like um, verifying news content. But again, I don't think the technology is quite there. These are just ways of thinking about future applications that may show promise in light of the challenges of AI. Because Anna was mentioning me and I found her list and also Irvin's um, examples extremely good. And um, I would uh, mention the same. And because Anna was mentioning uh, the value chain in the AI Act, and this was one thing that I also wanted to underline. Um, AI and especially their foundation models, uh, I would see them or consider foundation models as really the new general purpose um, technology like the internet, fire, iron, and so on and so on. And because we are there really at the beginning, um, of course, the market is still... Uh, rather open and everything is possible. Of course, what can happen again that we have um, after a few months uh, complete market concentration. So uh, foundation models are dominated by a few companies like OpenAI, DeepMind and so on and so on. But, and especially if we take blockchain and AI together, they they give us a chance to really rebuild also a little bit our economy to and yeah engage more companies um, to help them with information sharing as Anna said we in the European Union now put a lot of effort in um, the so-called um, Article 28 on responsibility along the AI value chain, where we are saying companies, okay, it cannot be the case that only the downstream um, provider of a high-risk AI system needs to be fully compliant with the AI Act. Uh, he or she needs to get all the information needed by, for example, data set supplier like Google or um, from a um, foundation model developer like OpenAI and so on. So we really try to, um, to push everyone um, into a direction that in the future there is just more exchange, um, of course, um, still considering that there are trade secrets and so on that you cannot share, but the rest you should share uh, more in the future. And again, blockchain and AI then could really kind of create decentralized marketplaces, which involve much more actors, smaller actors, include SMEs, startups, much more in the market like I'd, like it was um, not always the case before in the digital market, especially when we are looking now at uh, platform 1.0, where only really a few actors are dominant and basically all the rest of the economy are just customers that can just take the product and use it basically to build on top another service. So this, I think, makes me really excited that here we can maybe, yeah, create a new kind of economy, at least in a small area. That's great. Erwin, um, uh, 
I know you and I, uh, when we were in when we were in Barcelona together, we're talking a bit about um, autonomous agents and other uh, AI interacting with the blockchain. I'm interested in your view on that, and if 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 you think this is going to be a problem or is it going to be an opportunity? So, um, funny enough, you mentioned that because recently the um, the MakerDAO ecosystem. Um, they released their endgame proposal, uh, endgame phases one through five. And what this essentially does is it creates uh, sub-DAOs or para-DAOs, which is like, you can think of it as nested decentralization. And in phase three specifically, they talk about the introduction of governance AI tools that will be launched to help with improving governance and monitoring. And it will be aligned with the so-called alignment artifacts that are going to contain all the principles, rules, processes, and the knowledge of the MakerDAO ecosystem. And then these are going to be optimized with those governance AI tools, uh, creating a so-called ecosystem intelligence, is what they're calling it, that will accumulate knowledge and then help improve those processes and decisions over time. And then th there will be a fund, a purpose fund, that will be spun off from this for the development of these free AI models and tools for so-called socially impactful projects. So you can already see among major protocols and, and, and makers, one of the largest by TVL and DeFi space, that there is a concerted effort to already start using these autonomous agents, but at the same time creating, I'd say nested dependencies within the ecosystem. Because when you start talking about nested decentralization and DAOs within DAOs that are that have their own uh, their their own stable coins, like in this case, separate from Maker and Dai but still fungible with Maker and Dai. And then you have these AI tools that are being used in these separate layers, but then you still have the abstracted top layer. It's, yeah, I think it's still really early to say how that is going to be in practice because this is a protracted kind of time horizon. And I'm using one very specific example, but in general, I think another challenge of using autonomous agents within um, decentralized systems is first of all, is this autonomous agent simply like a, like a, helper droid in Star Wars, or does this thing have an identity agency? Can it attest? Can it trigger payments? Can it operate a validator node? Is it a delegator? These are going to be questions that will require a completely different rethink of how we're, how we're looking at, at liability and how we're looking at um, agency under EU regulations. Like at basic, you know, a, a reappraisal of the EIDAS framework to include autonomous agents, I think it's going to be extremely important. Um, within the GAIA-X ecosystem, you know, you have MoveID, which is already implementing the use of autonomous agents and mobility systems, right? That can build on, on decentralized, on Web3 platforms using smart contracts or specifically within decentralized marketplaces, like what, what Kai was already discussing, great example. Um, so I think we're always in the situation where like what developers can cook up in a lab is, is now here, but the regulation is always playing ex-ante catch-up. And I, I fear that we're running out of time in terms of closing the gap on these things because smart contracts and blockchain took 15 years, roughly, to get to where they are now. But the exponential growth of the artificial intelligence ecosystem is, I think, much more hyperbolic. And we're talking about a hockey stick versus just you know a slope. Um, and I think that this is the fundamental challenge that we are, we're racing against time. Yeah, great. Thanks for that, Erwin. So, um, as we think about autonomous agents 
interacting with the blockchain, becoming part of the blockchain. Um, one thing that I think is certainly on the regulator's mind and is is talked about a lot is having a having a human in the loop. And you know, Anna, I know you have thought a lot about um, issues around artificial intelligence and is sort of part of the solution having a human in the loop. And how do you view that and and its interaction with blockchain? That's such a good question. And it, I think it's a really tricky one because in some respects, I mean, I think it gets back to this point that Kai raised earlier, which is it's hard to make a general rule with respect to so many different technologies. And so my perhaps controversial take on having a human in the loop is that sometimes you don't necessarily want one or need one. It's really in certain contexts, it's really the speed of um, the transaction or the speed of the decision that's going to be helpful. And the human, the level of human oversight and where human oversight is executed or implemented is going to depend on the risks and versus the benefits of having uh, something happen quickly. So, um, you know, one of the ways to think about this is really outcome oriented. You know, where what is what is the right outcome for the system? And going back from that, does a human decision at you know point A or point B make sense? Or is it really the case that you want to have uh, the process unfold and humans to be able to go back and undo it later or stop it if it seems to be going far enough off the tracks and have some sort of monitoring in place for that? I think all of these are going to be a combination, you know, we can talk more about this, a combination of a human and a machine system with the humans and machines working in tandem. Uh, and so, you know, we're really beginning to define a future in which we're all going to be doing that in some way. I mean, whether it is, you, you know, Microsoft Word containing generative AI add-ins, you know, in some respects of what seems like a pretty easy use case where I can just say, okay, I'm like, I like this text or I don't like this text. I'm a fluent user of Microsoft Word to more complex robotic systems, to even more complex potentially trading systems. At every point, we're going to start having a world in which we have humans and machines, and we're going to have to define what that interaction looks like. And so I don't know if I have a, a general answer to that, even with respect to AI agents, because tomorrow I could create my own AI agent, you know, the kid in the, you know, in the garage next door could create a completely different AI agent for a completely different set of purposes. But I do think, you know, regulators on the one hand, but also companies and, and society more broadly are going to have to think about what kinds of tools we want to put into people's hands in the first place and whether we really need to think about um, leveling up education, actually, to make sure people understand the power of these tools and how to use them responsibly, because so much of this is going to come down to individual use and individual deployment when we start having tools that are customizable. Um, so, you know, that's my my view. But again, you know, I think others would would take a different approach. Um, and I'm curious for for the thoughts of the other panelists, because I do think it's a tricky question. Yeah. And. You know, Kai, I'm interested in hearing from you in particular. I know the AI Act contains sort of provisions around, you know, kill switches and circuit breakers. And, I'm, you know, I'm interested in, uh, in where your head is at on this issue. Yeah. 
Um, so um, there will not be a dispute between Anna and me because I completely agree with what she said. And um, luckily, from, from our political side, um, also the rest of the parliament agreed after lengthy um, debates on it. Because um, as Anna was saying at the very beginning, the, um, the AI Act originally was drafted in a way that there are a horizontal or that there is a horizontal legislative framework with rules that are applicable for every sector, for every use case in the same way. And this would mean, yes, there is indeed a kill switch in Article 14, um, Paragraph 2E, so on human oversight, that would um, apply to everything. So to smart contracts, to um, a connected car, to an um, AI driven vacuumer to whatsoever and um, sometimes a kill switch doesn't make any sense so Anna was already um, mentioning a little bit there is for example um, uh, one AI driven um, robot that is doing surgeries um, on the eyes this is always the example that I'm using because in this specific case there are studies that if you don't interfere with the robot. Most of the um, um, surgeries are going well. Um, the accident rate is really, really low. But if you allow the doctor to just stop the operation or really interfere in an active way, um, the number of accidents is skyrocketing. So in this case, it's one of the examples Anna was giving. There shouldn't be any human in the loop at least if this human is able to interfere because it's making it actually more risky it's increasing the risk um, and um, this is why as parliament um, again after lengthy debates we um, changed the complete approach of the ai act uh, with a huge change in Article 8, uh, which is kind of an umbrella article for all other um, high-risk obligations. And we are now saying there that basically all those high-risk obligations, like human oversight, need to consider the context of the deployment, the technical harmonized standards, for example, from Senelex that are specifying those articles and so on. And by doing that, we have now a kind of um, law with general principles, which is good because then we have a kind of minimum standard for all those use cases. But then it's really, yeah, you really need to do an assessment. Okay, what is the AI system, how it's used, who is using it, and so on and so on. I think this is really the best uh, way forward and is diffusing a lot of the problems that we would otherwise have. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I uh, I make a somewhat controversial prediction when I talk about artificial intelligence, where I make the statement that uh, I think the state of California in my lifetime will outlaw human drivers because it's irresponsible to allow a human to drive a car. Um, when when a Tesla crashes because of autopilot, it makes the front page of the news. Well. You know, why is that? It's because it doesn't ever happen, but it doesn't make the front page of the news when, you know, the drunk guy crashes into, you know, a building because that happens every day, right? I mean, humans are prone to mistakes. And uh, so the, the, you know, the idea of having a human in the loop 
as being the answer, I think is an interesting one. So um, maybe maybe just because it's really interesting what you are saying, I think this is a case uh, between the United States and, for example, a country like Germany, where you also need to take into account a lot the the general mood among the the citizens a little bit or also like cultural differences because in my country most people even though they know that machines are less prone to errors they wouldn't trust uh, connected cars at least for the next decades and really well decades. i think i think that's true i think that's true in the us too Ty. i'm just i think i think at some point the statistics are going to become overwhelming here uh, but anyway um erwin uh sort of question for you we've talked a lot about how um blockchain may actually be able to help uh ai and what some of those interactions are talk to me a bit about scalability because you know in the certainly in the early days of you know blockchain applications scalability was a real problem um, I remember hearing the, you know, outrageous amount of uh, processing power that, you know, CryptoKitties was taking up on the Ethereum blockchain. And it sort, it sort of blew people's mind about, hey, is this technology ever going to be scalable? And now, and now this panel is talking about having blockchain record every interaction of artificial intelligence in order to make it sort of transparent. Um, it, do, it doesn't seem like blockchain would be able to do that, um, and I'm interested in your view. So I'm just going to backtrack quickly on the issue of the kill switches because, and then I'll get to your, to your, to your question. Just quickly, just like you have um, kill switches that are being discussed within the context of the Data Act, you have so-called safe and robust termination under Article 30 of the, uh, pardon, of the Data Act versus the AI Act, right, which is what um, Kai was talking about. And I think it's interesting because when you're speaking about safe and robust termination in the context of the AI Act, so of the Data Act, so looking at smart contracts narrowly within the context of IoT devices, um, this kind of ecosystem is one where both IoT devices and blockchain and artificial intelligence should exist in some sort of melange because you're going to need sophisticated tools to be able to make sense of that telemetric data, impute it, and then timestamp it in some append-only ledger that can secure data fidelity and provenance. That being said, um, a lot of the uh, problems regarding using kill switches in blockchain have been developer fat fingers. Like when Ondo Finance locked up 600,000 USDC and tanked their entire protocol. Um, Solana uh, upgrade function, again, this is an issue of where, just like in the case of the doctor, if you let the person, sometimes eventually statistically, a fat finger could lead to something. And in, in this case, that usually means that a lot of money gets flushed down the drain. Um, with regards to standards, so I mean, the commission's also doing the same thing with respect to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the Data Act and smart contracts, right? So you have Etsy and Sensenelec developing or going to propose a hand to harmonize European norm. Um, you have a lot of work being done in Etsy PDL uh, 6, PDL 11 with respect to permission ledgers. So I think that these two things are like happening in parallel and there, there's going to come an infliction point when both the way that safe and robust termination is defined in the data act and the way that kill switches are looked at in the AI act are going to have to come to some sort of harmonization for these things to communicate in the future and cross pollinate. So I just wanted to, to briefly discuss that regarding scalability. Um, it's a big problem right now in general, uh, when you talk about 
just like you have the 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 Triffin dilemma in traditional capital markets, you have the the blockchain trilemma of scalability, immutability, and civil resistance. Anna, maybe I can uh, ask you to comment quickly on the scalability issue. Sure. Um, on scalability, no, I mean, do you think we're seeing that's likely to be an issue in the future in terms of recording, for example, all of the decisions of AI on on a blockchain? That's incredibly difficult to do. And I think even outside of the the scalability challenges posed by blockchain, that is incredibly difficult to do with respect to AI more broadly in any system. And so finding the right way to um, to record all of the different decisions and inputs to an AI system is, you know, that's a that's a big technical challenge and figuring out how how to preserve that information is a big technical challenge. I'm not sure that I think it's going to be solved right now, but there are some upcoming um, there are some upcoming proposals in the EU that might make that more important for companies to consider. And Kai may want to weigh in on this, but that's a place where the EU AI liability um, directive is is going to potentially have impact because there, you know, I think the concept right now, at least in its early stages, is that, you know, if you didn't preserve and make that in- information available, for example, if someone was hurt, then there could be a rebuttable presumption, for example, that you had caused harm. And so, you know, that's that's going to shake out in a in a huge amount of uh, additional legislative work. But it is to say that companies may begin to look at that more significantly Um, on scalability. The other thing to keep in mind, I think, is that AI scalability right now is going in the direction of scaling to larger and larger language models. That may also change as the computing power required uh, becomes a scarce resource and the value of being able to compute in large language models um, on mobile devices, for example, becomes a business interest. And so we are actually seeing experimentation with smaller language models, smaller data sets, for example. And so, you know, the scalability pendulum may, may swing in the other direction, but it is certainly an issue that I think many people are watching, both from a regulatory perspective, but also a competitive uh, landscape perspective. Um, I agree with everything Anna said, and honestly, what I was trying to say before was that you have the problem of, of scalability, civil resistance, and immutability, and this is kind of like the, the blockchain, the famous blockchain trilemma, but there's three ways, I mean, right off the bat, where you could say that AI might make a difference. The first is looking at efficient resource allocation, so AI could potentially predict um, transaction patterns, and then it could adjust those resources accordingly to optimize for network throughput. Um, another one is through data pruning and compression. So different AI techniques, um, they could be used to minimize the amount of data stored on a blockchain without actually losing any critical information to improve scalability. And uh, another one, I mean, just improving consensus mechanisms. Honestly, having AI algorithms to design more efficient consensus mechanisms that reduce the need for computationally intensive processes like, like proof of work. And we already see this with respect to what's being done even without AI, like in heterogeneous sharding, for example, um, or or the way that um, the way that uh, zero knowledge proofs are being used to take a lot of that heavy computation off chain, um, with respect to also being privacy preserving. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how you can apply those AI tools, for example, with respect to designing more efficient consensus, data pruning and compression, but also combining that with with zero knowledge technologies. I think that that's going to be a real game changer with regards to how that space pushes forward and how we could potentially overcome those issues with respect to large or small. Uh, language models going on chain. All right. Well, we're we're about out of time here, team. But I guess as as a final question, I'd ask you to 
look into your crystal ball a bit and predict if you think blockchain can help uh, solve the trust problem that that we seem to have with artificial intelligence. So, Anna, do you want to get started? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll jump in and say, I think there are ways in which it will help and ways in which it uh, probably won't solve everything, certainly in part because AI systems are designed to be human run, um, even if they have autonomous elements. I think we're going to see a lot of collaboration between humans and machines going forward. And some of that is about governing humans and not just the machine part of it. So I think we're, we need to remember that the humans are part of uh, both the promise and the challenge of AI. And, and the, on the technical piece, I do think blockchain will offer some uh, very interesting options in terms of uh, at, least, at least mitigating a few of the risks we've identified in AI so far. Great. Great. Kai, what's your thought? Yeah, I just want to uh, focus in my answer on one point. So I think, again, what makes me really uh, feeling excited about uh, blockchain and AI is this huge potential of the open source community. And um, so if we if we are really um, letting them engaging with with both technologies and also other technologies, I think it will help us to make um, what is happening uh, much more transparent and maybe address a lot of concerns and also problems uh, that are existing until now. And yeah, so I see the huge potential in from this rather civil society perspective, but also when I'm now looking at the European industry, for example, um, there are also huge opportunities if all those actors um, are working together in the future on a much better um, way, but also for, for companies to draw on certain um, certain uh, results or models and so on that have been developed by the open source community. So, yeah, this makes me very uh, enthusiastic, let's say. <laughs> That's great. Erwin, um, what are your thoughts about uh, blockchain helping artificial intelligence in this space? I think that there's there's definitely a bright future if we can calibrate at an early stage the way that these two um, technical substrates will interact. And I think we need to move towards um, what I call centaur regulation. Uh, so in the same way, that, you know, the early days of, of, um, of playing uh, against machines in chess, um, you had this brief period where people and machines working in consorts, so like centaurs, were actually winning against the machines. And I think that the more and more AI becomes sophisticated and it starts supplanting a certain percentage of, of the marginal productivity of human labor, I think that blockchain will by necessity be some way to secure data fidelity through this. And I think that we need to start recognizing that the workers of the future are going to be partially centaurs and also fully machines. So when we're transitioning our regulatory framework, we need to start considering the, both the centaurs and the machine as a consumer economy. Um, otherwise, all we're really doing is making rules for a, a snapshot in time, uh, be them for blockchain or for AI. And we're, we're missing the forest for the trees, so to speak. Well, that's great. Uh, well, thank you all for the interesting discussion. Um, Anna, Kai, Irwin, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for your insights. We hope you enjoyed our Hootenanny. Thank you for listening. 
For more hopeful and hype-free resources, visit owlexplains.com. There, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.